Today's reading is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It can be found on page 1079 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here with you today. It's good to actually finally see this church that Mark is always talking so uh, graciously about. He always says how great the equipment is and it never, never fails. No, it's, it's all right. No worries. <laughs> um, it's not how I usually start, but uh, I guess it'll work. I just won't, I won't lift up anymore. This is fine for me right now. Um, <laughs> Well, as, I, uh, as John said, my wife Stephanie and I, who's with me uh, over there, she, she and I live in Oakland. We're starting a new church out there. Uh, we, right now, are in a role at Christ Church. It's very similar to the role that, if any of you remember Eric Dirksen, uh, that he was in here with you all uh, a few years ago. So we're, we're hoping to do something similar, to receive some training, to learn how to pastor and start a church by doing it, and then go do it. Uh, so... Yeah, we're in, we're in Oakland, Berkeley area. We live in Oakland. We work in both places. Steph works in San Francisco, and we hope to start a new church somewhere in Oakland or Berkeley. Uh, we'll be sorting that out over the next year or so. And we, we really love Oakland and Berkeley because of... Uh, I, we really love them for who they are. You know, they've, there's all kinds of uh, comments that you hear when you say the words Oakland or Berkeley, uh, and even though they're right next to each other, they tend to be very different kinds of comments. Uh, but we we really love it there. I mean, you're close enough to your neighbors where you got to know them, but you're not so close that you don't want to know them. You know, they, they, there's amazing, amazing food, uh, amazing uh, art and cultural sensibility. Like, I love all your iconography up here in your in your church. You know, it's 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 a very much very much feels like this in a lot of ways, so I feel very at home here. Um, if you know anybody in Oakland or Berkeley, let me make my pitch for like relational connections. A lot of people in Sacramento, I've found, know people in the Bay Area. Uh, so if you know anyone there who's interested in talking to a pastor type, uh, I'd love to meet them. I'd love to just hear their story and learn from them about our neighborhood and share a little bit about what we're doing. Um, so if you know somebody, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to get to know them. Um, let me pray for us real quick before I start preaching. Father, 
thank you so much for this word that you've given us that is alive, that, uh, that not only we read, but that reads us, that gets us, that understands us, um, and more importantly, understands you. Thank you that uh, you've given us a chance, a, a time of rest from our daily activities just to reflect on what you have to say to us and to let it soak deep into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we were, uh, when Stephanie and I were on our way out to the Bay Area about a year ago this time, we were moving from Michigan, so we were driving across the country, and we stopped on our second to last day in Salt Lake City, which, if you've ever been to Salt Lake, it is a gorgeous city. I mean, it's got these brand new downtown buildings nestled against this picturesque mountain backdrop, these wide boulevards, cool places to eat, historic buildings, uh, one of which was the hotel that we stayed in. And as we, as we pull up to our hotel, we're greeted by this incredibly friendly, very good-looking, blonde, tall gentleman whose name was John, I think, I think, maybe I'm wrong, his name John? I think it was John. And John, by his stature, I was sort of pegging as a former tight end for BYU or something. Uh, He's a big, tall guy, and and we're checking in and starting up a conversation with him, and he asked the normal question, like, why are you here in in Salt Lake? And we said, well, we're moving to the Bay Area from Michigan. We wanted to see Salt Lake on our way through, and He's a good conversationalist, so he follows up, right? Well, what's bringing you to the Bay Area? Do you have a job there? I said, well, sort of. Uh, we're, we're actually going to start a church there because I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor. And, he's, and he says, oh, and his response was really memorable for me. And it wasn't because it was a weird response. It wasn't because it was unusual. It was actually because of how incredibly common it's become for me when I tell people what I'm doing. I, you know, I told him we're going to start a new church, and he says, and he says, oh, well, that's that's really cool. I mean, you you probably noticed or or could have guessed that you and I come from different faiths, uh, but I think that's great what you're doing. I think that's totally great because you seem like a good person, and and the more good in the world, the better, right? It it stuck in my mind because John's view of the church. Uh, is very, very similar to many of our views of the church and many of our neighbors' view of the church. That the, the primary purpose of the church is to produce good people, right? to, to put good into the world by producing good people. That's, that's the point of the church. Maybe some of you are here and that's actually kind of the point of it for you this morning. You come here because you want to learn how to be a good person, which is a good thing. You know, or you want your kids to eventually grow up to become good people. And, and so you come to church because this is the place where you learn to do that. You know, it's like some nonprofits provide legal services. We provide moral services. We teach you how to be, teach you how to be good. And that's not a bad thing. I'm guessing that probably almost everybody in here wants to be a good person at some level. Right? You, maybe you've based your entire life, your entire career on on thinking about how you could do the most 
good for society. Or maybe you're really frustrated right now in your career because you feel like, how could I ever do any good? Either way, you're trying to do good. And, and maybe right now you're in, enthralled with all the good you get to do as a parent in the life of your kid. And maybe you feel entrapped between the good you want to do as a parent and the good you want to do in a career. But either way, you want to do good. And so, so a lot of us, many of us, come to church this morning wanting to do good, wanting to be good, to be better. Maybe you're searching right now for something because you sort of feel intuitively like, I'm not meeting my full human potential here. Like there's something deeply missing in my life. And maybe if I just go to church and I stick it out, for long enough, I too will become one of those truly good people that I see at church, right? Um, if that's you, listen to Paul's last words. Paul's the author of this text that we're reading today. Uh, listen to his last words in this passage. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Created to do good works. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I get that. I, I, I think I am created to do good works. That's what I'm here for. Tell me, tell me more. Tell me how to do these good works you're talking about. And if I were preaching on Ephesians chapter 4, I would totally do that. But today, I'm not going to really talk about how to do good. I'm going to talk about why to do good. I'm going to talk about why do good. And, and the reason I want to talk about that is because I think that deep in most of our hearts, if not all of our hearts, deep in the heart of John the bellhop, deep in the heart of anyone who thinks that the primary purpose of church is to produce good people, are a couple of misconceptions about this question, why do good? Misconceptions that when we when we live out of them or lean into them, we, I, I think we'll end up frustrated, anxious, stressed out, unnerved, despairing, maybe apathetic, and certainly with very little motivation to do any good at the end of the day. So the question, why do good, I think is of primary importance. And I want to lead off with those two misconceptions. Two misconceptions about the motivation for doing good, I think, are really prevalent in our own hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of folks in our, in our neighborhoods, in our culture. The first one, the first, well, there, I'll give you the two and then we'll go into each one. They're basically this. We want to do good to save the world and we want to do good to save ourselves. We want to do good to save the world and we want to do good to save ourselves. And that might sound really grandiose, but stick with me a second. It's not just a manipulative, like, preaching tactic to use these big claims, save the world, save ourselves. It's really, I, I, I'm taking it actually off of Craigslist, believe it or not. Uh, I went on to uh, Craigslist postings for jobs in Berkeley where we live and uh, just out of curiosity to see what was on offer there. Um, and I found on the first page this posting that I'm not, this is a direct quote, summer jobs to save the world. Right, it's a totally Berkeley kind of thing to to put on there. But summer jobs to save the world. So you know, in three months 
or less for $12 an hour, you too can save the world, you know, unless you're totally overqualified for that, um, which probably most of you are. Uh, so this is not a, not a really, honestly, grandiose claim. We, we do good, a lot of us, to save the world. And another way of putting that really is just that we want to do good because we want this world to be good, right? We want to we wanna clean up trash at the riverbed because we want the riverbed to be, the riverbanks to be clean. You know, we want this world to be a better place. I think each and every one of us, no matter what our familiarity with the Bible is, we all want what the Bible calls the new creation. What Paul calls in the chapter before this one in Ephesians, the new heavens and the new earth. We all want this world that that is full of justice and peace, love and compassion, diversity and unity, beauty and wholeness. That's the kind of world we want to live in. And so we want to do the kind of good we want to see in the world, to kind of twist a phrase a little bit. That's why a lot of us are doing good. And that's a good thing. But there's a problem with it, isn't there? Because... If this is your root motivation for doing good, you're going to run up against a couple of things, I think. Maybe some of you already know this from hard-lived experience. That the problems of this world are so persistent and so complicated. Aren't they? I mean, they're so persistent. there's There's always another crisis. There's always another needy person. There's always another war. There's always another group of people being oppressed. There, there's always another gap in the system or injustice in the system. There is, there is always another problem. The problems of this world are so persistent and they're so complicated. They're so complicated. I mean, you have to listen to NPR for all of like 10 minutes to figure that out, right? They're, they're so complicated. I mean, how do you bring sustained economic growth to a community without displacing some of its neediest residents? How do you do that? People all over the world are trying to figure that out right now and haven't figured out a great solution to it yet. How, how do you buy your t-shirts locally without taking food out of the mouths of people in Malaysia? Right? How do you do that? How, how do you... Um, what was my other example here? How, how do you, yeah, how, how do you sort of figure out the, how to bridge the gap of the political, really onerous political divide in our country that's as big as mass media and as entrenched as people's hearts and minds? How do you, how do you deal with these big, persistent, complicated problems? And so if, you, if you're going at life, if you're trying to do good in order to save the world, you're probably going to end up really tired, really exhausted, really frustrated, really despairing, quite possibly apathetic, and with very little motivation at the end of the day to do good anymore. And some of you are like, yeah, well, that's why I don't try to save the world. I'm just really trying to save myself, you know, because I can, you know, the world... I mean, I'll try to do whatever I can for the world, but really, I got to take—I got to take care of me. Everybody's got to kind of take care of themselves, and 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 I would—I would actually press on that a little bit to say that that uh, saving yourself isn't all that disconnected from saving the world. They're very related because saving saving yourself is 
I think for most of us, when we really dig deep into what that means, that means we want to be the kind of people who would really belong in that world that we're yearning for. We want to be the kind of people who would really, really belong, fit naturally into, have, have no conflict with that world of perfect justice and peace and love and compassion and diversity and unity and beauty and wholeness that, that I talked about earlier, that Paul talks about throughout chapter 1 of Ephesians, that saving ourselves is really, at the end of the day, an effort to be good enough to be a part of that good world that we hope is coming. But the words good enough, uh, those, are, those are really hard words to hear for a lot of us because we spend most of our time trying to be good enough parents, good enough students, good enough professionals, good enough this, good enough that, to be, really to be a part of that new world, to be loved by God and therefore to be included in God's plan for this new world that Paul talks about in this letter. We spend a great deal of our, try, of our time trying to be good enough because we want, honestly, I think at the end of the day, we want to be able to pray without feeling like God is disappointed with us. We want to be able to, to imagine ourselves, imagine our perfect selves in that perfect world and it not feel like too, like too dishonest. But that's a really hard thing to do. That's a really hard thing to do. And so we run to uh, a couple of varieties of ways to handle that in our culture. I, I think when you hear the words good enough in our culture, you, basically you get, two different, you get two different things. One of them uh, is a meme that you might have seen on Facebook with the hand like stuck at the camera. And there are lots of these, I guess. But somebody's written on the hand, you are good enough. Right? Period. You are good enough because you exist. You are good enough simply because you exist. Good enough for what? Good enough for whom? Good enough why? I have really no idea, but, but you are good enough simply because you exist. And if you're like me, you probably are thinking to yourself, I shouldn't lift up on this anymore. You're probably thinking to yourself, uh, that's a little too shallow of an answer for me. Like I get at some level what they're trying to say, you know, instill self-confidence and self-esteem in people. But, but seriously, if you're really taking it to your heart, that's too shallow of an answer, at least for me, because I know that gnawing in the pit of my stomach when I'm not decidedly, when I'm decidedly not good enough. It doesn't explain the persistent human striving to be good enough throughout all of history. It's too shallow for me. And, and so a lot of us, if you're like me at all, tend toward the, the second option that our culture offers us. And it's not as popular of a meme on Facebook because it's not as self-esteem building unless you're one of very few people. But it's basically this. It's not you're good enough, period. It's you're good enough if. You're good enough if you get that promotion. You're good enough if your business doesn't fail. You're good enough if your, in my case, if your church thrives. You're good enough if your, your kids have all the opportunity in the world that, that is humanly possible to have. 
you're good enough if you pass the test. You're good enough if you get into this college. You're good enough if you get that job. You're good enough if your, your grad school actually applies to your job. You're good enough if something, fill in the blank for whatever it is you're striving for. Then you'll be good enough. Really? Really? I mean, if saving ourselves is really about being good enough to be a part, really being good enough to be a part of that perfect world that we long for, that we yearn for, that many of us work hard to create, if that's what being good enough is for, then, I mean... Take a moment with me and do a self-inventory. Do you, do you really think that you or I could be a part of that kind of a world? Perfect justice and peace and love and compassion and diversity and unity and beauty and wholeness. We could be a part of that world without ruining it, without, without staining it, without screwing it up. Because we may be pretty good people and we may buy organic food and listen to NPR and, you know, but, but we still, we still yell at the people closest to us because we're afraid of losing control. We're still caught in our secret addictions that nobody knows about. We still get angry, unjustifiably angry at our parents' idiosyncrasies, right? We, we still, I, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we still buy the things we buy knowing that they feed into a system that oppresses some people because frankly it's too complicated and time-consuming to figure out how to do it differently. We still live our individual lives and our communal life life in a way that frankly would ruin that perfect world that we long for. And so if we are trying to do good because we could save ourselves, because we could be good enough to be a part of that kind of a world, I think at the end of the day, we're going to leave exhausted and anxious and ashamed and frustrated and despairing and perhaps apathetic and certainly without any motivation to continue to do any kind of good. So what do we do with that? Why do good? Well, Paul, Paul recognizes the futility of trying to save ourselves and trying to save the world. And if you look at the, the whole first half of this passage is all about that. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, your boundary-breaking, line-crossing way of so-called life. You were dead. You weren't capable. You aren't capable in your, in your pre-connected-to-God state of, of doing anything that's salvific in any sort of way. Dead people can't do much, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live talking to folks who've been connected with Christ now, in, when you lived, listen to this, when you followed the ways of this world, this, this world, not the one you longed for, 
Paul recognizes this problem that, that we, all of us, left to our own devices, that we are all living that way. And he's, he says you at the beginning, but then he says, well, hold on, all of us also live this way at one point. All of us, every single one of us. And so I, with Paul, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about you that isn't also true of me. We all lived in the way of this world, not the world we long for. And so, so why, do, why do any good? Paul says there's a third reason to do good. Not to save the world, not to save ourselves, but because God has already saved us and will ultimately save the world. In other words, Paul says the third and true motivation for doing any kind of good in this world can be summed up in one word, grace. Grace. You see, Paul says, we, we have it so frequently flipped around. And we believe that salvation is something that is by our good, our good works for God's love. Paul says, no, 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 flip that around. Salvation is by God's love for your good works. The foundation of your salvation, the cause of your salvation is not your good works, Paul says, it's God's love and the effect, the effect is not God's love, it's your goodness. You, you were created for what? To do good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. The only possible motivation, Paul says, is, is God himself. He lays out this whole problematic uh, scenario in the first half of this and then the hinge point comes in verse 4 with two words but God but God and then he just lathers on God's activity in phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase but God because of literally because of that great love with which he loved us God who is rich in mercy by his grace, by the surpassing wealth of his grace. And again, it's by his grace, not by your works. It's his gift, not something you could do. It's God's, 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 God's activity, God's goodness, God's gift to us that saves us and will ultimately save the world. Paul just lathers it on because he does not want us to miss this cause and effect relationship that we often flip around between our goodness and God's love. And Paul doesn't just leave it, by the way, doesn't just leave this as a generic principle. This is not like, uh, okay, so we, we sort of, you know, believe this sort of religious principle that God loves everybody and he loves me and he loves this world, then, then all of a sudden I'm going to start feeling really good about, you know, doing good and That'll carry me through. That's actually not what he's saying. See, he refers multiple times and very specifically to somebody called Jesus. Christ, or in his terms, Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the anointed one of God. This is not just God in principle. This is God in person. See, Paul doesn't just say God loves the world and you should just believe that regardless of what you, you know, see or experience. He says God loves the world and he loves you too and you can know that for a fact, not because there's some principle that makes sense, but because an actual person came in history 
lived your life, my life from the inside, lived in this broken world in the midst of it, and then he took all of that stuff in your life that would keep you from living in the world that you long for, what Christians call sin and Paul calls transgression, took all of that stuff and nailed it to a cross along with himself and put it to death once and for all. That is why you can do good. That is the motivation to do good because God loves you, loves us, loves this world so much that he'd send his son to die to put all of the evil in this world to death along with him. That, that friends, is a God you can believe in. Not just a philosopher's or a theologian's God, but a God of the people, a God who came in history. Jesus Christ died and put our sin to death along with him. And when we really get that, when that really seeps into our bones, when that really starts dripping off of our tongues, you cannot help, cannot help but live a life of overwhelming gratitude to this God who is powerful enough to save us and actually wants to, despite all of the mess in our lives and in this world. You can't help but live in gratitude to that kind of God and praise and thanks, and not just praise and thanks that comes through singing songs like we're doing today, but praise and thanks that issues in and is a part of those good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. You see, those good works that you were created for, that's another way of saying you were created to worship. You were created to worship the God who saves you. You were created to worship the God who will ultimately save this world. That's what these good works in your job this week, in your neighborhood, at the riverbank, in your families, that is what these good works are. They're worship, they're, they're gratitude offered to God. And how could we not praise a God who has done what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And you know, you know, as I was thinking about this, one of the cool things about this is that it means we not only have motivation to do good in an ongoing, sustained sort of way, because this is God's finished work, but also work that he's in the midst of doing and will complete. But not just that we can keep doing it, we, we don't therefore do good work anxiously, but we also don't need to do it apathetically. We don't do it anxiously because... Because, you know, this world may be far too big for us to save. Uh, So we're under no pretend notions that we can actually save it. No matter how hard we work, you and I, we can't actually save this world. Too persistent, too complicated of problems. But we have a God who can. We have a God who can and has already begun to. And we don't do it apathetically because even though these problems are far too big for us, that doesn't leave us just sort of in despair because we have a God who can. We have a God who can and has already started to. So we have this motivation to, to do good works, a motivation that would lead uh, Martin Luther, who's a, a theologian and father of the Protestant branch of the Christian church, uh, to say, uh, when somebody asks him, uh, if the end of the world was coming tomorrow, what would you do? And he said, I'd plant a tree. 
Because he really believes what Paul's saying here. That God has made us alive with Christ. That God has raised Jesus from the dead. And that because he has exerted that kind of power in Jesus, he can exert the same kind of power in our lives to raise us from the dead at the end of time and to raise our world from the depths of its decay at the end of time as well. And by the way, along with our world, our work that we've done for him in worship of him. Somehow, this mysterious reality that the Bible talks about, that God will somehow raise our works done for his glory, done in gratitude to him, out of the rubble of history and incorporate it into his new earth. It's not, going to, it's not all going to burn. It's not all going to be completely wiped out when the asteroid hits or something. Right? Actually, there's a movie... I didn't actually intend to transition this way, so it's not like an inauthentic, oh, wow, that happens to be a movie I thought of just now. Uh, there's actually a movie about an asteroid I watched this week that sort of seared this into my mind, a movie called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It really it seared this message into my mind in a very visual way. Um, and it's, 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 probably, it's not the most family-friendly movie because it's really a sort of dark um, it's, it's a dark movie. It's not the Armageddon uh, or Deep Impact kind of movie where there's an asteroid that's coming, but either we can blow it up before it gets here or it's only going to kill most of the people in the world, but there will still be humans around. You know, this is not the Armageddon apocalypse of the, of the 90s. This is, you know, 2012. Uh, so this asteroid is going to hit the world, hit the earth, and everything is going to be gone. 70 mile wide, wide asteroid, the astronauts failed to blow it up in three weeks, that is 21 days, that is 504 hours and counting. Nobody in this world will be alive, this earth will be part of history. And what's really interesting is that in the, in the face of this asteroid going to obliterate the world, the whole first half of the movie really is a sort of sort of imaginative wandering into what people in our culture generally would behave like if that were true. If we knew that the entire history of the world was going to come to an end in three weeks. The question on everybody's mind is, how do I behave then? Because I'm certainly not going to go sell insurance anymore. <laughs> right? I mean, how do I behave? And the and the answer, really, for most of the people in this movie is, is given in this rhetorical question. Well, why do good? Why do good? What, what's the point? I, can't, I can't, can't save the world by doing good. The astronauts tried, they failed, and that's it. I, I can't save the world. I, I, can't, I can't save myself. Why do good? And so, so you have these very tame suburban families that are throwing parties that would make frat boys very uncomfortable, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. And you have people in urban centers working out their anxiety by rioting in the streets. It's absolute mayhem. And then you've got this one really weird, briefly seen character in the movie. He's only in the film for about two minutes. 
Dodge and Penny, the main characters, they meet him in jail. Um, which is, like, why would you put anybody in jail when everybody's rioting in the streets and you only got three weeks to live anyway? They meet him in jail, and it's ironic because he's put there for disturbing the peace. And his version of disturbing the peace while everybody is throwing bricks through windows is wearing a sandwich board sign that says, the end is near. Right? And this guy, uh, Dodge recognizes later on that night, is sleeping on the cot. And he and Penny are sort of just anxiously awake. They can't sleep, right? And, he's, and he says, Dodge says, look at this guy. The whole world is anxiously awake. And here he is sleeping like a log. You know why? Because he's not surprised. That is the restfulness of a vindicated man, he says. And I'm really curious about this sandwich board guy. Because while I'm not the biggest promoter of sandwich board evangelism, he, I, I, want, I almost wanted the movie to follow him around a little while. You know, because I wondered if it did, if it would discover a guy who is not sleeping and restful because, so much because he was vindicated, but because he had hope. I wonder if it would discover that he was not so much uh, sort of self-assured and self-righteous as he was God-trusting. I, I, wondered, I wondered if you asked him why you can sleep at night. It's because he would have said, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that I can't save the world or save myself. I wonder if he would have read... Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul obliterates that possibility like an asteroid. And I wonder, I wonder if while he was sleeping, he would have been dreaming about the new earth that God was about to create. And I wonder if he would have been dreaming about his own new life before the face of and in the presence of the Father. And I wonder if he would have been hearing God say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've done what you're created for. I wonder. Let's pray. Father, some of us in this room know from experience from heartbreaking experience that we can't save ourselves and we can't, we can't save this world. Some of us are, are only starting to learn that. Others of us have more time to learn that. Lord, we pray that you'd sear this onto our hearts with the heat of an asteroid, that you would obliterate our notions of self-reliance so that we could live more deeply reliant on your grace. Lord, we pray for the overwhelming joy and peace that comes from knowing that you love each and every one of us so deeply, regardless of where we're at in life, that you would actually step into history and die for all of the mess in this world and all of the mayhem in our lives so that you could set this world to rights, so you could recreate it.
and recreate us along with it. Lord, we pray that you'd press that upon our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us that motivation, that, that power by your Holy Spirit, that same power that you used to raise Jesus from the dead, that you would give us that power so that we could be agents of your goodness in this world, so that we could be a sign and a foretaste of that new earth that everyone longs for. That people would see our lives and they would say to themselves, that, that must be what God is about doing in this world. We pray that you'd give us the grace to be those kind of people. So that people all around this world would come to know that grace along with us. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.